0: Welcome to the second episode of Defending Conscience. We're talking about the book written by Matthew Littlefield and Tim Grant, who are with me in the studio today. Uh, The book is by a similar title, Defending Conscience, How Baptists Reminded the Church to Defy Tyranny. Uh, You can order that book right now from defendingconscience.com. So uh, listen to the podcast, please. We're going to be talking about the book. We're not going to be giving away the contents, uh, but issues around it. Uh, And in this episode, we're going to be talking uh, about the process, if you've ever wanted to know how books get written, uh, well, this one has a a cause and a, and a problem uh, that we uh, that the authors were trying to address. We spoke about that in the first episode. If you haven't listened to that, go back listen to it now. But uh, Matt, when did you start writing this book, and and how did you uh, I guess get with Tim and and put the idea, and what was the method behind uh, the final
1: result? Yeah. Well, there's two answers to that question. And the first answer is that we started writing the book together, Tim and myself with Google documents online or Google docs online last year in September, after we decided we want to put those articles together, but I actually started this book several years ago. Hmm. And the reason that was is when I was doing my masters at the Baptist college, when I was uh, training to do my master of arts in theology, I did a project on a man called Menno Simons. So for those who are not aware, and I understand if you're not aware who Menno Simons is. You probably Meho. Menno. Menno. So you've heard of the Mennonites. Okay, yeah. Yep, the Mennonite Church or the Amish. Yep. The Amish are the most famous aspect of the Mennonite church today, but the Mennonites were really the first Baptists in the 16th century. Hmm. And a few years ago, I, I started studying the life of Menno Simons uh, for an assignment where I was studying the way he thought about church, the way he thought about salvation, and how his views on salvation impacted how he viewed church. And what struck me and inspired me about Menno Simon's life was the way that he defied tyranny. He was a Catholic, a Catholic priest in the 1520s in the heat of the Reformation. And he was, he was struck around him by all of these radical people that he saw who were willing to be persecuted for their faith called Anabaptists. And he was struck by the fact that these people were willing to die for matters of conscience that many other Christians weren't even willing to speak about. Mm-hmm. And he was starting to be challenged himself about the shallowness of his own faith, which wasn't really genuine. He actually says that one of the reasons he stayed a Catholic minister so long was he loved to be able to drink and play cards with his fellow priests and he had a good income. He wanted to keep the income. In fact, he was doing such a good job because he started preaching from the Bible that he actually got a promotion. But eventually he ended up giving all of that up to, to walk alongside these uh, these anabaptists and he became one of their leaders and that's why the anabaptist church became the mennonite church and we could maybe talk about that a little bit more in detail uh, in the future but what ended up happening is his life story inspired me so much i decided when i was going to go on and do more postgraduate study which i started to do after my masters that i wanted to look at the influence that Menno simon's views on conscience and liberty had on society and i started to notice that many of the things which we consider to be Western today were actually Baptist and specifically Anabaptist first, but then Baptist in the 17th century. And so what I did is I did hundreds of pages, oh, sorry, dozens of pages of research uh, and uh, hundreds of pages of reading, uh, writing, I wrote dozens of pages and I, and I, um, I read hundreds of pages from multiple books trying to put together, where do these concepts of liberty of conscience uh, tolerance for religion. Where do these ideas actually originate? Because anyone who knows anything about the medieval church, the, these weren't principles of the medieval church. Okay. Now there is good things we do get from the medieval church, but it's not these things. So I wanted to find, and then I started to notice. Hang on a sec. Every every direction I looked at it from, it always came back down to these Anabaptists and these Baptists. So this was basically the core of my uh, my my PhD thesis at the time, which I was doing the research on. And so that's when I actually started writing this book, but it was, it was part of a larger thesis. And then basically I decided not to continue with that research at the time, with that postgraduate degree, because I love being a pastor. I didn't really need it to be a pastor, but I always said to myself, one day I'm gonna write a book about this because people need to know this. Yep. And so I actually created a file in my, uh, my writings folder on my computer, uh, how Baptist helped influence the world it was titled something like that. Right. And then when this whole situation came along, Everything that I had read, the things that Menno Simons went through or the other early Baptists like Thomas Ellis or John Smith or Roger Williams or or, or John Bunyan or many of these other guys went through, I started to notice. well, this is really similar to the same sort of issues we're facing now. And so really, the, the real answer to the question, when did the book start for me was years ago when I was studying these issues. And then, so when Tim and I came to write the book in 2021, he had done all this reading on Baptist history. and. And conscience issues and, and tyranny from the perspective of what the communists did in Eastern Europe, and I'd done all this work in, previously, and so we were able to bring this together, and it really gelled into the book that we've written.
0: Tim, um, how did Matt approach you, and, and what was the the method, I guess, in in collaborating on a on a book together? Um, in the first episode of uh, Defending Conscience podcast, uh, we spoke about the fact that you needed to, between you, be somewhat reactive to criticisms of the Ezekiel Declaration. Uh, how much of that is in the final book and, and how much was uh, was it expanded? What, what was the method
2: there? Uh, yeah, yeah, so we wrote some articles um, in defense of what we had done. Uh, and then we were aware of the, the need to fill that void of the history, the Baptist history, the Anabaptist history, that to say what we were doing uh was something very baptist we were just doing something that baptists have done throughout history advocate for liberty of conscience Uh, so matt had already started writing some articles he put um uh some of his information from his phd studies in there he invited us in um on on google docs that's a fantastic way to write uh articles until a certain point it gets a bit (laughs) clogged down after about 200 pages or so with uh, all the notes and all the comments and things that became very laggy we had to Break it up a few times and restart, uh, but that seemed to be a very helpful way to write a book um, with the 2,000 kilometers distance um, that we that we have between us. So you're in far north, uh, far northwest Yeah, I'm in Mount, Queensland. Mount Isa, so... which is uh, I'm
0: just trying to think of the, the screen here. Okay, so far northwest Queensland, and yeah. uh, we're down here. You get in to the Reach, and then you need Queensland. to drive
2: another seven hours west, northwest.
0: Yeah, Um, 2,000 k's away. Good. Hard to collaborate, but easy easy with that uh, dynamic document.
2: So that's how we collaborated uh, in that. One of our other friends from college came in as the editor as well, who had also written some books, provided valuable feedback uh, as well. So the way we did it was, well, Matt was aware particularly of the Anabaptist history uh, and the, the links to John Locke. I was very much aware of the English Baptist history, uh, and some of his he pointed me to some of his research as well on Roger Williams. And during that reading, I picked up on a few other things as well. The importance of a man named uh, Isaac Backus, who in the uh, uh, 18th century uh, advocated against a um, uh, what was called ministerial tax that the Congregationalists uh, in, a, in New, New England in America required the Baptists, the Quakers to pay a certain amount of tax to pay for the Congregationalist pastors. And their buildings, and the uh, Isaac Backus said, "Look, we cannot pay you the tax, or even present you certificates of exemption, because that would infer that you have authority over us that Christ has never given you." Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. Isaac Backus went on to provide a draft, which i um which um, his, his there's elements of his draft in the American uh, Bill of Rights, particularly around uh, religious uh, freedoms. Uh, really. Yeah, interesting. Um, There there was another fellow, which he isn't in the book, but by the the name of John Leland, uh, an uh, American Baptist pastor, who was very heavily significant in the American Bill of Rights as well. Um, So, just my reading sort of put me onto a few other things as well. One of the more interesting articles or documents I came across uh, in the English Baptist was uh, a work by uh, Christopher Blackwood, who wrote an article uh, called The Storming of Antichrist in his strongest and final garrison of compulsion of conscience uh, in 1644, uh, addressing the tyranny of uh, King... So what's his name? uh, Christopher Blackwood, and his article was Uh, So, Christopher
0: Blackwood asserted that uh, tyranny of conscience is the work of the Antichrist.
2: Yeah, so that's a common theme that we've uh, found through Baptist history, that they put uh, coercion of conscience or compulsion of conscience as a behaviour... Of Antichrist to force someone to to obey or, or to to act in such a way uh, against their conscience and against how they believe that uh, God would have them act. Mm-hmm. So that makes total sense to me because what what
0: they're doing, what whoever they binding someone's presuming to bind someone's conscience is doing, is basically saying that relationship you have with obedience directly to God, where He speaks to you. I mean, what does it say? Uh, where we know inherently, instinctively, right from wrong, um, and and our accountability, of course, is directly to God. Um, they're saying you're basically taking God out of that equation and putting anything else in there state, government, uh, a different denomination, congregationalists, you were saying
1: mm-hmm.
0: Um, mm-hmm. To, to take God out of that equation and, and assert some insinuate some other kind of authority there is anti Christ.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, I based a message on on this very concept, which I did at a, a mandate meeting earlier in the year at a friend's church, and you were there to see that. And I actually quoted Christopher Blackwood in that right. because it's just so clear. In fact, it's it's one of the it's one of the one of the most powerful arguments that came out of the research that Tim and I were doing, and it's it's just very consistent. And you see this throughout history: these times of great coercion of the state. Uh, and it, it's interesting if you read. Chinese history or Indian history you'll actually see these same times of coercion but there's no defenders hmm. why because the key thing they don't they didn't have the, the west the church Hatch was the church and hmm. it, it's not that the church and this is another thing which and another key argument that people made against the book which is compl- what is about a- in greek history was the, was
0: there uh, a defender of conscience uh, I, I know greeks are famous for allegedly starting democracy but um, was there a, a right to conscience in the in greek politics without the influence of the church
1: not really greek democracy was very different to western democracy i mean many people would trace western democracy to greece and there is some validity in that but greek democracy was set up to disempower the king and stop him from limiting the power of the oligarch oligarchs so uh, greek democracy was set up basically to limit the power of of the king defending the right of the poor. Not to maximize the power of the populace. No, not at all. I mean there is some <laughs> there were some ways in which it did give power to the populace because all of the the men of the city, the citizens of the city could come and make decisions in, in the context of their the democratic settings. Uh, so there was a degree to which it, it did give more people power. But it was also about disempowering. One of the things which is very common in ancient history, and this is a whole other topic, but just just to briefly answer this question, I'll give a very brief summary here. I'll get back to you in a second, Tim. (laughs) In the ancient world, the king would defend the poor and he would release them from their debts. And this was very common. Hmm. And so Greek democracy was set up to stop the king from being able to do that. That was a big part of it. Hmm. And give the power back to the oligarchs who had all the money. Uh, So this is another important point. A bit like Russia. (laughs) we digress we do not digress (laughs) but this is an important point because it shows how different Western society is because of the church Mm. there might have been smatterings of these ideas in Greek culture and Roman culture and you know we got ideas from their law but it was really the concept of liberty of conscience in the church which and not just this idea but just the principles of the New Testament itself which made the West so unique and
0: I really don't want to spend time on here, but just a brief note and then I'll ask more about the structure of the book. But it, it wasn't always a good thing. Like it was actually the tyranny of the church binding conscience that the pilgrims sought to escape. It was, it was actually freedom to worship which caused them to flee Europe and head for America. Uh, and, and it was the church oppressing the church. Um, it was the church in government oppressing the church, where you had to believe whatever the king believed. Um, So, yeah, uh, but it was ultimately that liberty of of conscience, especially in in religion, uh, which which gave birth to the great American uh, experiment in democracy. Tim, just wrapping up conversation about the structure and method of writing the book, uh, how is the book broken up and how did you allocate uh, the tasks and responsibilities for completing them. Was there any uh, shared chapters or did you yeah. just say you do this topic and I'll do that
2: topic? And, and yeah, there's a fairly logical flow through the book. It begins with the Anabaptists being in the, uh, the 16th century, uh, then moves on to the English Baptists of the 17th century, uh, and then the American Baptists in the 17th and the 18th century. Uh, and then that influence on John Locke, Uh, and his influence on greater society. Then it looks at a period of time when Baptists failed to advocate for liberty of conscience, that is American prohibition, and we explore the the consequences of the church's in defence or um, uh, in that time, and particularly we use a book uh, as a bit of a framework there called What Prohibition Has Done to America by Fabian Franklin. He wrote it in 1922, so he wrote a book in a period when it wasn't Uh, uh, going to be very acceptable to write a book. And we we saw Mm -hmm. that the consequences of um, Prohibition and uh, the COVID years were very similar. Things like the disruption of the rule of law, the resentment towards law enforcement, um, the empowerment of dark forces, the enablement of tyranny, a lot of similarities. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
2: we wanted to say, look, here's what happened when uh, Baptists failed to advocate. And in fact, during Prohibition, uh, the Baptists, Uh, you could find in the pulpits people um, preaching prohibition. Uh, And I think at one stage in in an SBC convention, they they said that to produce or to drink alcohol was a sin. So they made a moral, uh, an absolute principle on a point of Christian liberty. Well, the the temperance societies
1: are are famous advocates of prohibition. And they were uh, filled with Baptists, Baptists and Methodists. One of my favorite preachers, a charismatic preacher in America, his name's Mark Gungor. Uh, some people might oh have yeah, he's it. awesome. Yeah, yeah. Laugh so, your way to a better marriage. Yeah, yeah. He does a brilliant talk. I think it was at a women's conference, or a, I think it was a women's conference or a men's conference. I can't remember which one. And he, he talks about the great clout and power that the church had in American society, and then he's like, "Where did it go?" <laughs> yeah. And he points out prohibition, uh, and that's one of the things that originally got me really? to read about that and look at the way the church just. Basically, Are you serious? Yeah, you know, when the when the mm. church spoke in in nineteenth century America, people listened. And it, on an issue like alcohol, which people like this is a silly issue to outlaw, but the church had such power, it was able to get a constitutional amendment put through banning the sale and production of alcohol. Constitutional amendment. A constitutional amendment. It's it's the eighteenth amendment, and uh, was it the eighteenth amendment, Tim, or was the repeal no, of the eighteenth? It was the 18th Amendment. And then, the, then it, was, it, was, it was backed up with what's called the Volstead Act. And the Volstead Act actually was the application of that amendment. Basically, the church <laughs> took all of its social capital, all of its power um, that it had built up by building American society mm. and squandered it on foolishness. Uh, and the Baptist church and the Methodist church, but particularly the Baptist church, which I think made up like 75% of the members of the anti-saloon league, or some, it's a very large number, uh, just destroyed their legacy. You've heard the jokes Baptists and alcohol. Mm-hmm. You, know, you ask people, they think of the Baptist church, they're, like, they're the guys who don't drink wine, or you know, they're the guys who are a little bit of the uh, you know more conservative, less fun church. Well, we used to be radical advocates for liberty, hmm. but then we squandered all of that on the issue of alcohol in America. Fantastic.
0: Well, uh, let's leave it there for the second episode in the Defending Conscience uh, podcast. And uh, we will uh, resume uh, in episode three. We'll see you soon. Don't forget, by the way, buy the book. Head to defendingconscience.com and uh, you'll see there... A list of reviews and uh, the the cover and you'll be able to order the book and everything you'd expect from a book website will be on the book website head to defendingconscience.com get your order get your copy today buy one for a friend and don't forget this is a good book for both christians and unchurched people because we're talking about the foundations for liberty in your country uh, and that's something you should know more about the history of so that uh, government can never take advantage of you ever again Uh, defendingconscience.com we'll see you in the next episode